didn't accept Jesus into my heart, he came and kicked the door down. My conversion was radical. It was literally overnight. And as a new Christian, I understood very little about the Bible. The Christian faith in general was just all very strange to me. I knew next to nothing about Jesus or Christianity other than the fact that Jesus was God, he died on the cross to forgive me of my sins, and that that required me to live a new life. Nobody taught me that. I just kind of knew it instinctually after he saved me. But other than that, I was pretty ignorant. Now, because I live in the Christian South, I, had a, I was in a pretty advantageous position. There were tons of people around me all the time who were willing to try to help me understand Jesus and Christianity. I encountered people who tried to help me understand this man, Jesus. And it seemed like the more I tried to talk to people about Jesus, they were trying to convince me of their understanding of who he was. And as you can imagine, in even this city, I got a lot of different responses, a lot of people trying to teach me some very different things about Jesus. One young lady told me, Jesus is love. He is love. God would never be mad at anyone because Jesus is God in the flesh and he is love personified. Man, that made me feel good. Another person that I came into contact with told me that Jesus was a khaki man. You know what I'm talking about. Khakis, belt, button-up shirt, loafers. Jesus was a khaki man, plaid shirt. You know, he is a card-carrying Republican. He drives a Ford F-150, and he has an NRA sticker on the back of his Ford F-150, and he would never be okay with you wearing a hat in church. You better believe it. Others that I came into contact with kind of taught me about a different kind of Jesus. This Jesus was the Jesus who was like in favor of abortion and was a card-carrying member of Greenpeace, and he was a member of the Democratic Party. And, you know, don't you know, he's just all love all the time. What made it even more confusing was that the people who were trying to teach me about Jesus, some of them were actually trying to use the Bible to teach me about Jesus. And I really didn't understand what I was reading. I would open this thing up and go like this and go, there's no hope for me. So finally what I did was I decided to just kind of drown out all the voices and I just said, I'm going to try to read this Bible and I'm going to try to understand it. But I didn't grow up in the church. So whereas most of you, even if you weren't Christians at a, at a young age, you probably grew up hearing the story of Moses and you probably grew up singing the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons have Father Abraham. Man, that's pretty good. <laughs> I never heard that. And I was really struggling. Then one day, my grandmother, a eight times divorced ex-heroin addict who was a staunchly non-practicing Catholic, gave me a book. She was not a Christian, didn't care at all about Christianity, but she was in Books a Million one day, and she saw a book. She said, that looks like a book about Christianity. I'll give it to my grandson. Again, didn't really too much care about Christianity. She was just happy that like, I wasn't selling drugs and I wasn't doing drugs, and I wasn't incarcerated. And so she was like, you know, whatever it takes to kind of keep you out of prison, I'm cool with Christianity. And so she gave me this book, and I was like, oh, thanks, Grandma. And I went home, and because it was a very sentimental gift, I threw it immediately into my closet, not to be read for several months. But then one day, for some reason that I don't remember even now, I went into my closet, and I picked up that book, and I started to read. The name of the book was called The Jesus I Never Knew, and it blew my face off. I mean, it wrecked me. In this book, I saw the Jesus of the Bible. I saw Jesus as both lion and lamb. I found him to be both loving father and also ultimate judge. I came into contact with angry Jesus who flipped tables over, and I came into contact with gentle Jesus who says, I love you. I came into contact with Jesus, the Messiah, the Jewish figure. And I also came into contact with Jesus, who is God, who supersedes Judaism and who brings it to its completion in his person and work. I did not find a Jesus who fit neatly into the modern or ancient world, into the rich man's house or into the poor man's ghetto. I didn't find a Jesus who would be comfortable at a Republican national convention or in a Democrat meeting. 
I didn't find a Jesus that made sense to me. This Jesus, he challenged philosophers in their wisdom. And he challenged the foolish in their folly. This Jesus hated man-made religion, but contrary to what I had heard from other younger Christians, he did not hate true religion. This Jesus hated sin more than I could possibly imagine. But he also loved me more than I could ever know. This Jesus was fully God and fully man. He existed before the foundations of the world and somehow this Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life and died on the cross that we might be forgiven of our sins. He was a friend to sinners yet untainted by sin. He was sympathetic to me and my weaknesses but not okay with my rebellion. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. After I read this book, I went back through and tried to read more of the Bible, and so I read the book of Matthew, and everything changed. I don't know if you've ever read a book twice, but sometimes you can read a book the first time and not get much out of it. The second time you read it, everything changes. But the book hasn't changed. You've changed. With this understanding of who Christ was, now I went back and I read the gospel, and I saw everything was pregnant with meaning. Jesus came alive to me. In verse 12 of what we're going to see today in our text, the people do the same thing. They are coming into contact with the true Jesus as he is revealing himself, and they are blown away. And their response is to say this, we have never seen anything like this. And that's how I felt when I saw the Jesus of the Bible. I've never seen anything like this. We're going to read an entire chapter of the Bible together today. And in this chapter, there are five encounters that Jesus has, and they are all conflicts. And those who are present at these conflicts are being stunned by the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And that's from the common folks to the Pharisees. They are all blown away by this Jesus who sits with tax collectors, and he heals on the Sabbath, and he forgives sins, and he puts his glory on full display. So let's read about this Jesus together in Mark chapter 2. We're going to read from Mark chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 6. If you don't have Bibles, you have phones with apps on them. If not, there should be Bibles somewhere on your pews. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even in the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made him an op- um, <clears throat> and when they had an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed. And they glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, 
Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. And we just read a lot of it. Good job getting through it. Now let's try to see what it means. The first thing that we learn about Jesus today is his authority. Now, if you've been here, you've been studying the book of Mark with me, and you have seen Christ's authority put on full display. Christ has authority over unclean spirits. Christ has authority over sickness. Christ has authority over the traditions of men. Christ has authority over mob rule. Today, we continue to see the authority of Christ put on display. Even as we see him heal the man with a withered hand, he's demonstrating the authority that he has over the physical world. Moreover, we see the authority that Jesus has as he calls people to himself. Now, typical of Mark in his gospel, we don't get many details. Mark doesn't tell us much about what happens in the calling of Levi. He simply says, follow me. And in the same breath, Matthew gets up, who is Levi, and follows Christ. He responds to the authority of Christ decisively. There's something really amazing about the simplicity of this call. It reminds me of my own call. The Lord called me, and I simply came. There was no turning back. I didn't think twice. I couldn't put my hand to the plow and then look back home. I just had to go. I got up out of my grave by his power and followed him. And this is always what's true of Christ when he calls. When Jesus Christ calls you, truly calls you, you will follow him. You will respond to his authority. In the book of John, we see the same sentiment where he says, Jesus says, but because you are not my sheep, you refuse to believe. Now, Jesus is not saying that they aren't his sheep because not, they don't want to believe. He's saying, the reason why you can't believe is because you don't belong to me. If you belong to me, you would believe, which he says, my sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So imagine you're a little sheep. Christ comes along, and he says, hey, sheep, let's go. If you belong to Christ, if you are his sheep, if you do know his voice, when he comes and calls, you go. That's the authority of the shepherd over his sheep. And that is the authority that Christ has on all who have called, or who have been called by him. Practically speaking, what, 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 what should this mean for things like our evangelism in the life of this church? Which I'm assuming that we're doing. Did you know that the ability to bring spiritually dead men to life does not reside in you? Did you know that like Scott intrinsically does not have the authority to bring dead men to life in his body? Even if he's a really good Christian, even if he reads his Bible 10 times a day and has memorized the book of Revelation, 
even if he's given all his money to the poor and caring for sick people, volunteering at the AIDS hospital, and doing all the good things, maybe he gives 40% of his income to this church. I mean, he is the best Christian ever. He still doesn't have the authority to bring dead men to life. That is the authority that belongs to Christ. When we preach the gospel, all we're doing is channeling the authority of Christ with our presentation of the gospel. We are merely trying to be faithful with the authority that has been vested to us. This should be a great comfort to us. You don't have to have the perfect gospel presentation. You don't have to deliver it exactly right in order for someone to go from dead to life in Christ. You don't have to know all the scripture. You don't have to be the best Christian. You could have even sinned this week and God can still use you because it's not your authority. It's not anything intrinsic to you. It's Christ's authority with you. That is what brings dead men to life. That is what makes men leave everything behind and follow hard after Jesus. We may beg and plead with men to repent of their sins, but the Spirit of Christ is the only one who has the authority to irresistibly call men to himself. It doesn't depend on our wisdom or our eloquence or our dynamic preaching or teaching or scripture knowledge. It's just our faithfulness. And sometimes he even calls men to himself despite our faithlessness. There was a time 500 years ago when the church began to come alive. We now know of it as the Reformation. And you know what? This year is the anniversary of the Reformation. It took place 500 years ago this year. It was an incredible awakening. The church had been in the spiritual darkness of medieval Catholicism for centuries when finally the gospel light began to break through. The Bible was being printed, which meant it was being read and it was being studied and understood and disseminated. And it was being applied. And the gospel broke forth into the world. The gospel was coming out. The levees of the medieval Catholic church were broken by the waters of God's word. And at the very center of the Reformation, at the most crucial point in this battlefield, this spiritual battlefield, was one question. Who has the authority? Who has the authority? Does the Pope have the authority? Does the king have the authority? Do governors have authority? Does the church have authority? Do traditions have authority? Do councils have the authority? Or does the Bible have the authority? Does God, in his word, have the authority? Well, we see, we see the very same question in today's text. It's a similar controversy. The question is, who has the authority? In verses 23 through 27, Jesus is dealing with accusations of Sabbath-breaking. And again, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the Pharisees are watching to see what Jesus is going to do on the Sabbath. We've already discussed whether or not it was legal to heal people on the Sabbath. It was. It was totally acceptable. But that's beside the point. Both of these incidences show us the authority of Jesus to interpret what is and is not lawful on the Sabbath. Where does that authority come from? Look at verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. <clears throat> Lord of the Sabbath. That may not mean much to you. I doubt you spent a whole lot of time immersed in Jewish culture. But if you would have been a Jew in the first century, and if you would have heard a man say, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, you would have probably picked up stones to begin stoning the man for blasphemy. Because to say, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, is to take a title on yourself that only belongs to God. God, in the Old Testament, refers to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. So when Jesus says, listen, stop with all the questions. Don't worry about my interpretations of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He's planting his flag. He's telling you he is the one with authority. Keep paying attention. As we keep studying the book of Mark, you're going to see more and more of the authority of Jesus popping up. Now, another thing that we learn about Jesus in today's text is his uniqueness, the uniqueness of the ministry of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we're guilty of acting like God changes. Sometimes we think that God acted one way in the Old Testament and acted a new way, a different way in the New. 
We think maybe God saves people by works in the Old Testament, saves people by grace in the New. But that is just not true. But it does teach us something about the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us there is nothing new under the sun. And the idea that God is different and works differently is a heresy that's as old as the church itself. There was a guy named Marcion, and he said, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is angry and wrathful and blah, but Jesus, he's good. He's a good God. We like him. But Marcion was wrong. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and he doesn't change. Now, that's not to say that there's no difference between the Old Testament and the New that's not to say that there's no difference in the way that God works in his old covenant and in the new covenant. But the thing about Jesus is, as people approach him asking questions about fasting and Sabbath, they want to know what he thinks. They want to know, why do you think you're special? Hey, they say, we see John's disciples, they're over there fasting, and we see the Pharisees, and we look over there, and we see their disciples, and they're fasting. Who do you think you are, Jesus? You're supposed to be this big deal, and like your disciples aren't even fasting. Little did they know that Jesus is unique. His response to them in verse 19 is telling. He says this, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In telling this, Jesus is saying, Listen, I'm not like John. I'm not like him. John came baptizing you for the remissions of sins. I'm the guy who's going to come and actually make, you, make it possible for you to be forgiven for sins. I'm not like John. Oh, the Pharisees and their disciples are fasting? Well, guess what? I'm Jesus Christ. I'm not like the Pharisees or the scribes or the Herodians or any of the other religious leaders of the day. I am something entirely different. And when I'm here, people don't fast. He gives two illustrations to explain what he means there. One is with uh, sewing a new patch onto an old garment. Now listen, I know like if y'all get a hole in your clothes, you just throw it away. You know, this, this might have made more sense to your Depression era grandparents, or maybe for some of you, your Depression era parents, than it means for you today. But, you know, listen, cloth used to be something that was hard to come by. It required a lot of work or a lot of money. And so if you got a hole in it, you didn't just quickly discard it. So people used to sew patches onto it. But what they would have to do is they would have to rough up the patches and they would have to wash the patches several times so that the patch was as old and as worn as the garment before they sewed it on. Because if you take a new patch and you sew it onto an old garment and then you get it wet, what's going to happen to the patch? It's going to shrink. And what happens when that new patch shrinks on that old garment? It's going to tear. Another example that he uses is of a wineskin. Now I know y'all are like, what is a wineskin? I've seen a wine bottle. A wineskin was just something that wine was kept in. And you would take a new skin and you would put wine into it. And as the wine would expand, the new skin would have the ability, the dexterity to expand and contract with the wine. But an old wineskin was brittle. It was feeble. It was always on the verge of breaking. And so if you took an old wineskin and you put new wine into it, that wine would expand and it would burst the skin. With these two illustrations, Jesus is simply saying, listen, I'm doing something new. The way that you've thought about religion, the way that you're used to approaching God, I'm, I'm changing that. I'm doing something new. So if you try to take what I'm doing and apply it to your old way of approaching God, your old way of religion, it's not going to work. Jesus is utterly unique. Another way we see the uniqueness of Jesus' ministry is through the signs and wonders that he performs. Hey, did you know that this is not like a book of miracles? This Bible is not a book of miracles. As a matter of fact, if you were to go through with a highlighter and like highlight all the miracles in the Bible, you wouldn't come close to using up your highlighter. It, miracles, or what the Bible calls signs and wonders, are kind of blips on the radar in the Bible. But Jesus comes and he shows his uniqueness in the display of his power. He arrives on the scene and the people of Israel have not seen miracles for many centuries. It has been basically silent. But Jesus comes and he heals a paralytic. He heals a leper. He restores a man's withered hand. He's utterly unique. He's not like John. John couldn't perform miracles. He's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. They did not have power from heaven, but Jesus does because he is something different. He is altogether more powerful. 
more unique, more authoritative. And we're going to come back to that a little later. Another thing that we learn about Jesus today is his omniscience. In chapter 3, verse 2, if you still have your Bibles open, you'll see that it says, And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Jesus seems to be all-knowing. Verse 6 shows that the scribes were questioning in their hearts. It says, now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. I'm sorry, that's chapter 2, verse 6 as well. Chapter 2, verse 6 says, now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Jesus knew. Jesus knew what was going on in the hearts of these people who were sitting there watching this miracle about to take place. He understood the depths of their hearts. Verse 2 tells us that very thing, but it doesn't tell us that they said anything about it. In, verse, in chapter 3, we see that Jesus is sitting there, and the man with the withered hand comes up to him, and they're watching, and they're waiting, they're observing, they want to see what Jesus is going to do. Is Jesus going to heal this man on the Sabbath or not? Now, Jesus, he deduces that they're angry with him. He, he knows that this is coming. He already understood their flawed interpretations of the law. He knew the rules that they had made up and put on equal footing with God's rule. But Jesus asks a very important question here, and it's, it's right in our face so that we miss it. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Why did Jesus ask that? Why did Jesus ask if it was lawful to kill or to save life? Who had said anything about killing? The man approaches Jesus with a withered hand. Nobody said anything about saving life or killing. Why does Jesus ask that? Well, the answer is hiding in plain sight. Look at verse 6. It reads, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. You see that? Jesus knew that the religious leaders, in response to his mercy, were going to plot his destruction, his death. So not only does his question leave them speechless, verse 4 says, and they were silent, but it also reveals the great irony of the situation. The religious leaders were watching, and they were waiting for Jesus to do good, to show mercy, to express love, so that as soon as he did one of these good deeds, they were going to pounce on him, ready to kill him. Nobody said anything about killing, but Jesus knew, as soon as I perform this miracle, they are going to go plot my death. Jesus did not just deduce the situation. He saw into the hearts of these men. He saw their anger, their bitterness, their malice, their wrath towards him. Another thing that we see about Jesus today is his mercy. Did you know that mercy triumphs over judgment? Later in Jesus' ministry, he will once again be challenged about doing good deeds on the Sabbath. And when he does get challenged, Jesus asks him a question, as he's so prone to do. He says, hey, uh, if your donkey falls into a well on the Sabbath, are you going to pull him out or not? And in asking this question, Jesus is basically saying, mercy work is not work. Mercy work is not work. Mercy work is not the kind of work that we're called to rest from on the Sabbath. You know, Sabbath was a law instituted by God that you would work six days and rest on the seventh. And so these religious leaders were so careful about protecting that. They had this idea, okay, if if it's illegal to travel on the Sabbath, we're going to define traveling as walking 1,001 feet. And then that became a law. But God never gave that law. That was the law of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so they had their own understanding of work. But Jesus' understanding of work was that doing mercy is not work. The religious leaders had come to view this thing as the, this thing called the Sabbath as something that was created for man to uh, something that was created for man to observe. But in reality, the Sabbath was actually created for man. It was created to serve man. God knew. He knew the sinfulness of our hearts. He knew that we would be tempted to trust in ourselves. He knew that we couldn't just work six days a week and trust that he would still provide for us even if we didn't work the seventh. He knew that we would be compulsive trying to constantly be grinding, grinding, grinding away, not trusting in him. 
So he gave us a command to rest. It's a kindness of God. But what the way that the religious leaders talk about the Sabbath is not a kindness. It's a burden. It's a burden for these people to bear. The Sabbath is not an arbitrary law from a dispassionate God. It's an expression of the very character of God himself and his love for us. And so, when the leaders make the Sabbath about rule-keeping rather than God and his mercy towards us, they fundamentally distort the Sabbath. But Jesus understands the Sabbath and why it was instituted. Now, I want to take a quick aside, especially because we have some young whippersnappers here. What some of you may be hearing me say is, it's okay for me to break God's law as long as I'm being merciful. So let me take a moment and say that is explicitly not what I'm saying. I am not saying it's okay to break God's law as long as you're being merciful. What I'm saying is that Jesus is not, in fact, breaking God's law. Jesus is bulldozing the law of the religious leaders, which was an add-on to God's law. But young people, they tend to misjudge things like this. They tend to th look at a situation and say, oh, that's man-made. That's man-made. That's not from God. An example of that would be standing for your elders. Uh, I recently had a conversation with Blaine about this, told him that it was in the Bible. There was another young man who one time said, yeah, you know, <clears throat> Standing up when an older person walks into the room, that's from my father's generation. You know, that's, that's what they did. That's not what we do. Well, I took him to the Bible and showed him where God commanded the Israelites to rise before their elders in a way to show honor. He was kind of taken aback. He didn't know that that was in the Bible. He thought that it was just custom when in fact it was from God's word. And so the danger for you young people who are all riled up and excited about doing mercy ministry is that you think you're bulldozing the rule of man with God's mercy, but you may not be. As a matter of fact, you may actually be hurting people. So before you swing that wrecking ball on the traditions of men, make sure that you're actually swinging it in the right direction, because if not, you may actually end up being unmerciful yourself and sinning against God. Another aspect of Jesus' mercy that we see here is the fact that he prioritizes the eternal over the temporal. I know those are big words. What I mean is, Jesus cares about your destiny, the long term, not just the short term. You've already seen that in the book of Mark. Everywhere he's go, he goes, he's doing miracles, and then he says, hey, you know what, man? I don't have time for this. I gotta go. I'm preaching the gospel. Because miracles don't lead people to Christ. Miracles won't save anyone. The gospel is what saves. So Jesus is prioritizing the preaching of the gospel. And we see the same thing today where Jesus basically says, even if I do heal you of your sickness, there's a much greater need. At the beginning of chapter 2, we see that. The, the, the cripple is brought before Jesus to be healed, and Jesus looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now we can speculate as to why Jesus chose to do what he did instead of just healing the man and then forgiving him, but that's kind of, it doesn't really matter. The point is that when Jesus does that, he's communicating something very important to everyone in the house that day. And he's communicating the same thing to everyone in this room this morning. And it's this. Your greatest problem is probably not what you think it is. Your greatest problem is something much deeper and much more profound than you probably realize. What problems did you bring to church today? What longings do you have in your life? What areas do you feel like you're lacking in? In what ways, if you were in another church, would somebody, a charlatan in a suit, stand up and tell you that God was going to fix in your life if only you would pray and give your money? What did you bring to church today? What do you want from Jesus? What's your greatest problem? Whatever you think it is, I promise you it's probably much worse. Unless you come to Jesus saying, my greatest problem is my sin, Jesus' response to you is you don't even understand the depth of the situation that you're in. We can be pretty dumb sometimes, right? It makes sense that we don't understand the reality of our situation. We oftentimes fail to realize how much trouble we're actually in. We underestimate the mess that we can get ourselves into. One day I was having a conversation with my boss, and uh, not my current boss, an old boss, and he was telling me that he was going to fire one of my fellow employees. And I was thinking, oh, that's a bummer. I actually like this guy. I liked hanging with him. He came in that day, and he looked like he was kind of flustered. 
And I said, hey, man, is everything okay? He was like, man, I lost 60 bucks yesterday. And I said, how'd that happen? Uh, overdraft fees, you know, three different overdraft fees, something, something, something didn't work with my bank, and they charged me 60 bucks on nothing. And he was really worked up about it, you know? And I just thought, man, you have no idea what's coming down the pipeline. You have no idea. That 60 bucks is like the least of your concerns. And that is so often our experience. We fail to understand the depth of our issues. In the same way, when a sinner comes to Jesus for physical healing, be it a toothache or a blood disease, Jesus looks at the person and he says, listen, I get it, you're suffering, but you have no idea. Things are about to be worse for you than you could ever imagine. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I wonder if you've considered that. I wonder if you've considered the reality of impending doom that we as Christians would say that you are facing if you don't know his son, Jesus Christ. If Christianity is wrong, you have no reason to fear. You know? If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, and Christianity is wrong, just keep living your life. Sing with the philosophers. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. None of this matters. None of it. You're wa- you are all just wasting your lives right now. You could be out living life to the fullest. If we are all just conglomerations of cells floating around on a piece of cosmic dust in the black abyss of the universe that will one day implode and turn into nothingness, then nothing matters. Nothing matters. This is all just a waste. But if that's not true, and if Christianity is true, if we are created by an all-good, all-holy, perfectly loving God who is perfectly just, and if we have rebelled against that God, if we have sinned against Him and rejected Him, and if we really don't know Him, and if He really is grieved at our sin, but not only grieved, if He actually is opposed to us because of our sin, and if we do face His wrath because of our rebellion, and if there really is a place called hell, where his eternal wrath resides against his enemies. Well, then I would say that if you don't know him, a sense of impending doom seems to be very appropriate. Which leads us to our next point. The love of Jesus. Jesus is grieved at sin and death. Jesus is not pleased to have his wrath set against us. And that's why he is calling us. And if you don't know Christ, he is calling you. Gently, lovingly, but also authoritatively calling you to repent of your sins and to trust in him. To abandon your own strength, to give up your life and to make his life your own. Jesus' heart is that you would turn from your sin and trust in him for salvation, not trust in yourself. Look at the words of Jesus in verse 4. This is in chapter 3, verse 4. The words say, He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Like a father looking at his wayward son, Jesus is both angry and grieved at the same time. Yes, God is angry, and he's wrathful. We can't deny it. We don't want to deny it. If you deny that God is wrathful, then you deny his justice. You don't want to judge to be sitting in that courtroom over there in the Morgan County Courthouse and have a rapist come before him and he says, you know what, man, I love you, you're good to go. You would say that is not a good judge. As a judge, you expect him to do justice and to sentence that person to their crime. We don't want to deny the justice or the wrath of God. But we also shouldn't deny his love for us. His wrath is not an unaffected wrath. It's not devoid of emotion. His wrath is not a wrath that doesn't have love. His wrath is a loving wrath. Like parents who finally call the police on their teenage son who is just becoming too unruly in the household. God's wrath is a heartbroken wrath. When the Pharisees should be longing to see Jesus heal the paralytic, 
when they should be longing for justice, when they should be longing to see the man forgiven of their sins, when they should be longing to see Jesus' disciples fed by the grains in the field, when they should long to see this man with a withered hand have his image restored into the image of God by having Jesus physically restore his body, they instead are filled with evil intent and hatred. They don't love like Jesus loves. They don't love justice. They don't love people. They love themselves. They love their rules. They love their religion. They love their traditions. But that's not how Jesus loves. As a matter of fact, Jesus loves us at a great cost. And he loves the imperfect. He loves those who hate him. He loves sinners like you and me, which is good news, because if he didn't love sinners, there would be no one to love. The final thing that we learn about Jesus in today's text is his divinity. If you have not been seeing the divinity of Jesus in the book of Mark, you have not been paying attention. It is all over the place. And here again in chapter 2, we see Christ, the second person of the Trinity, put on full display. We've already touched on the omniscience of Jesus, which in itself is quite compelling. It's evidence of the fact that he is God in the flesh. But you know what? The fact that Jesus knew stuff that was going on in other people's hearts, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was God. I mean, maybe God just kind of revealed it to him as he might reveal truths to a prophet. But in the first conflict that we encounter today, we see what is absolutely and undeniably the most obvious sign of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Let's start reading in chapter 2, verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Did you know that the scribes are asking the right question? They're asking the right question. Who alone but God can forgive sins? John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the man that Jesus described as the greatest person to have ever lived, would never dare to pronounce forgiveness of sins. Not only that, but he would not dare to speak as the mouthpiece for God, as an intermediary between God and man to declare forgiveness of sins. John could get people wet, he could put them in the river, and he'd say, oh hey, do you want to be forgiven of sins? Oh yeah, you want to be forgiven? Well hey, let's do this thing called baptism where it's telling everybody that, it's symbolizing it, but he would never say, I, John the baptizer, forgive you of your sins. He would say, you are showing evidence that you want God to forgive you of your sins. In Jesus' forgiveness of the paralytic sins, we see Jesus doing something similar to what we saw in chapter 1 last week. Do you guys remember Naaman? You remember the, the leper Naaman? How he went to Israel to be healed of his leprosy by a prophet. And when he got there, he had a letter from his king to the Israelite king. And in that letter, one king told another king, Hey man, uh, my servant's here. Uh, he has leprosy. If you could just go ahead and heal him real quick, that'd be great. And the king read it, and he, was, and he, he tore his clothes, and he was distraught. He said, This guy's trying to pick a fight with me. Why would he ask me to heal another man of leprosy? I can't heal anyone of leprosy. Who alone but God can heal a man of leprosy? <clears throat> and then we saw Jesus. Jesus came and he touched the man. And he healed him of leprosy. Who alone but God can heal a man of leprosy? And today, the scribes ask the same question. Who alone but God can forgive sins? Now, if the scribes were right in their estimation of the situation, if Jesus really wasn't the Messiah, if he really wasn't God in the flesh, then they were right. He was a blasphemer. He was lying about God. But if they're wrong, then they are the ones who are blaspheming, and they are denying the enfleshed God who stands before them. So to just kind of help make things a little clear, Jesus gives them a sign, something to let them know, to really let them know that he is who he says he is. But first, Jesus asks a question, and the question is this. 
Which is easier? He's really setting them up here. Which is easier? To say to a man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Here's the thing. Anyone can stand up and declare that you have been forgiven of your sins. Anybody, literally any person, if you're a child able to speak, you can stand up and say, hey, I forgive you. Roman Catholic priests do it all the time, and it doesn't mean anything is actually taking place. There's no objective way to see if the debt has been paid, if the sin has been forgiven. Anyone can do that. But if I brought Catherine Berger in here, who suffers from so many different physical infirmities and has been suffering for years, and who doctors cannot figure out what's going wrong with her. If I were to bring her in here this morning and heal her on the spot, not just anyone can do that. This man, he's been a paralytic for probably a long time. He can't walk. Four people bring him in. And Jesus says, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and go? Just so that you know I am who I say I am, watch this. Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And the man stands up, he takes his bed, and he goes home. Jesus didn't have to do that. But he wants them to know that he is who he says he is. Last week, we saw that the preaching of Jesus explains the significance of the miracles of Jesus. <coughs> and this week, we see that the miracles of Jesus are testifying to the preaching of Jesus. Jesus says, I am here. I am the Messiah. I am the one. And I have come to forgive you of your sins. And your sins are forgiven. And in case you doubt it, look at the things that I'm doing. Nobody can do that. Only God can do that. I don't care what the people on TBN say. I don't care what Joel Osteen says. I don't care what Benny Hinn says. I don't care what the girl with the big puffy pink hair says. Not just anyone can do what Jesus did here. Only God can do that. And this isn't Jesus showing off like some superhero, some teenager who just found out about their new superpowers and who's out slinging webs and making paralytics rise and forgiving sins. This is Jesus showing his identity. All throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is showing off his identity. And the forgiveness of sins is so profound. Imagine that Will and I are walking down the road one day. And as we're walking down, let's say, 6th Avenue, a stranger walks up and approaches Will and decks him in the mouth. I'm talking full on, the guy is a boxer, and rocks him, bow, a shot straight to the kisser. Will is leaking, bleeding all over the place. And I look at the guy and I go, hey man, I forgive you. Will, mouthful of blood, would say, what do you mean you forgive him? You can't forgive him. He didn't hit you in the mouth. He hit me in the mouth. I'm like, I got this, man. I forgive you. You can't do that. He didn't sin against you. He sinned against me. A man cannot forgive sins because sins are against God. Only God can forgive sins against God. So when Jesus Christ says, your sins are forgiven... He's not so subtly telling you exactly who he is. In the same way, you can not hold men's sins against them, but even you cannot forgive sins that have been laid against you. You can only release them in your heart. There was a, a guy who wrote seven books, the most famous of them. Well, he wrote more than seven books. He wrote a, uh, not a trilogy, he wrote a, a collection of books. The most, most popular one was Narnia. And this, other, this guy, although he wrote children's books and space odysseys, he also wrote some other stuff, and he preached some sermons, and he gave some lectures, and he taught, taught at one of the world's most uh, distinguished universities. He grew up an atheist, and then later in life he was an agnostic. And then finally he was surprised by the joy of Jesus Christ, and one of the most intelligent men in the world became a Christian. And when he did, people would ask him questions like, how did this happen, man? I thought you were smarter than that. And one of his responses was this. As I came to encounter Jesus Christ, I had to ask myself the question of who Jesus is. And I had to realize that Jesus was either Lord, 
liar, or lunatic. Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. You see, if Jesus is claiming to be able to forgive sins, but he can't, and he knows he can't, but he's just doing it kind of like as a, as a, as a show, he's a charlatan, he's not actually God himself. He's a liar. He knows in his mind he can't do these things, but he's saying that he can, and that makes him a liar. And you know what? We don't listen to liars. When we think about these great moral teachers, if we find out that they're habitual liars, we don't trust them. We don't listen to them. Their words don't have any credence because they lack integrity. One of the biggest reasons why uh, the Nixon scandal was so big was because it was like, we can't trust this guy. He lied in a very big way. If you want to see a marriage fall apart, watch a husband cheat on a wife or a wife cheat on a husband because from there on out, they're always wondering if they can trust each other. We don't trust liars. Liars are not good moral teachers. So even if you don't believe that Jesus was God, you can't say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher like the Dalai Lama or Confucius or anybody else because we don't listen to liars. Now, maybe Jesus wasn't lying. Maybe Jesus honestly believed that he was just a regular human being who had the ability to forgive sins. Or maybe he really believed that he was God <coughs> and that as God, he could forgive sins. But if he was wrong, if he thought he was God and that he could forgive sins and he wasn't God and he could not forgive sins, you know what we call that? A crazy person. Like, I love everyone in this room, but if one of you walk up to me afterwards and say, Sean, I need to tell you something. I'm God, and I forgive you of your sins. I'm going to take a step back, you know, just clear the space a little bit, and then I'm probably going to have a more serious conversation, and then you might end up in Decatur West before the night's out. Because when people tell us that they're God, we know that something's not right there. The cheese has sort of slid off of their cracker. But if Jesus is telling the truth, if he's not a liar, and if Jesus is not a lunatic, then the only other option is that he has to be who he says that he is, which is the God of the universe, God, the second person of the Trinity, God, our Savior, God, our provider, God, our Father. I think that Jesus is God, and I'm willing to stake my life on it. I'm willing to stake my eternity on it. And so is this church. And if you're here and you're a member of this church, it's because Jesus Christ, as God, has forgiven you of your sins. He's made a way for you to be reconciled to the Father. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I would encourage you to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. He is a good God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us so well. We have not deserved it. We cannot earn it. There's no amount of good deeds that we can do to earn your love. But you've loved us anyways. And one of the main ways that you've loved us is by telling us the truth. So we ask that you would continue to help us to understand your truth, to believe your truth, to faithfully communicate your truth, and to live in light of that truth. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.